0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Hey, glad to see you, Albright. Oh, man, this is great. I don't get to do this much. I want to thank Nathan and Will for allowing me to step up here. Uh, we're going to share today, and it's going to be about marriage and the gospel. Oh, boy. Now, I don't know what just happened, but a whole bunch of things just went off in everybody's mind when I said those two words, marriage and gospel. And I don't know what they are, but that's why it's so much fun when I get a look out and see everybody here, because since communication is about 70 to 80% nonverbal, there's all kinds of stuff I see that you don't think I see, but it's fun doing that. But welcome and thank you. I am going to be using an awful lot of scripture today, so uh, I beg your pardon up front, if I'm looking down a lot, I did not memorize all of it. Now, I know I probably should have, but that's the way it goes, but... To start out, we're going to read from Ephesians 5, which is kind of a classic one, even though in your bulletin you're seeing Genesis listed. Well, there's a reason for that, and we'll be back to that soon. We're going to go back to the foundation of marriage, and we're going to see how it is completely intertwined with the gospel. So if I could get that, if you're either on your phone, your tablet, Or in the Bible, there are Bibles in the pews if you need it. But we're going to read from Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. We're on a good start already, aren't we? Now let's add this one, though. This is where sometimes we stop. Husbands, love your wives as Christ, what? Loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Co-equals, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There's a lot there, isn't there? That's one of the classics on marriage. And we're going to take you all the way back and show how God has used marriage to be part of his plan of redemption from the very beginning. So pray with me now as we begin. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to you and know that you love us, you care for us, and you actually have created a fellowship of believers to be your bride as we see in your word. But today, help me just stand behind your word and may you speak to each one wherever their need may be this morning because we all come at a different place in our marriages, in our lives, in our relationship with you. But we know that you can meet each one sitting here today From the youngest child to the eldest saint, in the power of your spirit, through your word, speak to us. We need you. We need your help. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we opened up there. But I'm going to take you back to Genesis. So flip your Bible almost back to the beginning. And we're going to talk, what does God mean about the gospel, marriage? Are they really that big a deal? We have a culture right now. It's not the first time. We are going through another one. They call it culture wars. You can read different things going on. But we see the body of Christ, believers, that are going to be at times at odds With what the state. So I'm speaking for us here in the United States. And I'm looking at a blank screen. You're all looking blank, me, right? It's all right. Go to Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis 1 and 2 first. What happens? I think they had a little problem translating my PowerPoint into the presenter. But anyway. why would we go back to Genesis? Well, quite frankly, it's the foundation of everything we know about who is God, what is God, who is man, who is woman, what is creation, how did we all get here? Why are we here? And it's so often that we forget that that foundation that was laid carries all the way through to Revelation. God had a plan. For those of you who believe, did you know that you were chosen before the creation that we're going to read about here in Genesis 1 and 2? Yes, you were chosen according to Scripture. He laid out a plan. There was a U-turn in the middle of this thing, actually kind of at the beginning. So this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to just do it. It's not going to be a seminar of how to improve your marriage, although the Word of God on the subjects we are talking about should enable you. Everybody is somehow related to marriage here. You're either married now, someone's preceded you that you were married to, you may have remarried, young people, most people marry. So it's going to apply to you. But if we get that foundation right, and that's what we're going to try to do, and in our talk this morning, I've got two big points I want to make, even though there's four you know, subtitles up there is that we're going to see how marriage enables us to love God better and it enables us to love our spouse and others. And God has chosen the sacrament of marriage as one of the institutions that He does that with. Now, I am not a marriage expert. For those of you who are new, who haven't met me before, my wife and I are looking to celebrate our 42nd year of marriage this August. I think it's getting pretty serious. (laughs) She's hung in there. (laughs) Um, We have had successes. We have had hardships. We've had all the stuff there is. I'm going to kind of take you into where it says producing godliness I don't know, maybe you've been taught a lot of that, that marriage will produce godliness in your life. But we're going to talk a little bit how that can be done, how it should be done, and some of the challenges that are in there. Because I know most of our marriages aren't the romantic scenes that you see in the magazines, the movies, that's romanticism. There is romantic love. There is sexual love and intimacy. But if you've been married more than a few years, I think you found out by now that most of the time it looks more like driving in the Midwest than the peaks and valleys of the Rocky Mountains, right? So just add up the hours. Now, for those of you who have lost your loved ones, that takes on a whole new meaning also. And we're going to discuss that. And then what I really like... um, is while I was studying this, God has used some imagery in the ancient Jewish culture of the marriage, how a Jewish wedding and marriage process was, went about. And all of a sudden, all kinds of verses in scripture just start to open up. I don't know if I'm supposed to read that or not. <laughs> um, so that's what we're going to do, preparing the celebration. First, though, I want to read you a copy out of a book called *Sacred Marriage*. The guy's name's Gary Thomas. Maybe some of you've read his stuff. Uh, the family life people uh, are—it's big in their weekends to remember. But there are all kinds of good things. But I, I, I like this, and so if you'll bear with me, marriage for all of us is temporary in the light of eternity. The truth is, our relationship with God will outlive our marriage, right? It will. Most likely, the time will come when one of us precedes the other into eternity. The remaining spouse will be left alone, no longer married, perhaps even eventually remarried to someone else. For the Christian, marriage is a penultimate rather than an ultimate reality. Because of this, both of us can find even more meaning by pursuing God together and recognizing that he is the one who can fill the spiritual ache in our souls. We can work at making our home life more pleasant and peaceable, We can explore ways to keep sex fresh and fun. We can make superficial changes that will preserve at least the appearance of respect and politeness. But what both of us crave more than anything else is to be intimately close to God who made us. If that relationship is right, we won't make such severe demands on our marriage. Asking each other, expecting each other to compensate for spiritual emptiness. Unfortunately, as a fallible human being, I can't possibly appreciate the way God appreciates my spouse. I can't even begin to understand him or her the way she longs to be understood. I get bored with myself. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. I still think I enjoy being by myself. I talk to myself a lot. So So it only makes sense that my spouse might occasionally be bored (laughs) or at least grow weary of living with me. Now, he doesn't put in there, but it's like how many years of clock, socks, and workout, gear left on the floor. (laughs) She might grow weary of that. Working on it, 42 years. I know, we're getting serious. But God delights in both of us. God appreciates our quirks and understands our heart's good intentions. Even when they may be masked by incredibly stupid behavior. (laughs) I think that captures where a lot of us have lived at different times. But I just thought, hey. He goes on in his book called Sacred Marriage to talk about not what our culture and media want to put out so often that happiness is our ultimate goal. We want to be happy. What if, what if the design for marriage that God instituted was to make us holy more than to make us happy. If we look at marriage through that lens, I think it adds a whole new dimension of how we will approach the husband or the wife created in God's image, equal spiritually, but created in God's image as a special creative act. All right, that's to start it out. So now, I think I flipped you back to Genesis to start, right? All right. So we're going to talk first God's purpose and plan for marriage. I've kind of introed it a little bit from where I'm going. This is not going to be six steps to a better marriage, but it will be the word of God and the design I see that he has given all of us. And really, Genesis is the key. Genesis is the key. Even though it's the first book of the Bible, it lays the foundation of where we're going. God created the earth. Is that new to anybody? may believe it, may not. It's it's only only a handful of persons were there to know God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they, thankfully, have recorded that for us in Genesis. So, we're going to go with that. So, I'm going to go to Genesis 1, 28 first. No, I'm going to start with 20. I'm sorry, I backed myself up. Got ahead of my points. Starting with 20. So, first part of creation, he's gone through the days, light, dark, water, Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters, there were sea monsters, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. That's a benediction we get from the Latin. It's good. Benedicto. So, God looked at it, at every phase of his magnificent creation, and he goes, this is good. This is good. Let's read on. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. You realize we're not talking about us there, right? That's the people in the sea. That's the animals. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then, verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, the earth, after their kind. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind. And everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was benedicto good. I like what I see. This is working out. This is good. This is very good. Then God said, Woo, big change coming. Verse 26. Let us make man in our image. God's image. According to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. At the same time he created him, male and female, he created them. Same time. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be feed for you. And to every beast, Of the earth, and to every kind of bird, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Big change. It was very good. Emphasis on man and woman. Creation of man and woman Hold them, bless them, be fruitful, multiply. That's where we start to see the beginnings of marriage. And there was evening, and there was the morning, the sixth day. All right. Made in one flesh man and woman. God made the woman out of the bone of man. We're going to read that in chapter 2. He said it was what? Very good. His whole collective creation up to this point, God is saying, it's very good. Holy God, new creation, everything in it, all of its kind except for one kind, human beings. They were created by God for a very special purpose, and they are very good. Now, you start in verse 2. I'm not going to go through it. You recap it. Kind of goes back and reiterates what's in Chapter One of Genesis. 18, though, we get a big change. Then the Lord God said, "It is not, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him." Hmm. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. The man gave his names to all the cattle. And it goes on. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Adam already began his created work in the garden where God placed him. Having dominion over the earth. You see the beginning of the scientific enterprise. Taxonomy. Naming. Identifying. That's a bird, you're a whatever, a rhinoceros, you're whatever, God keep giving me names here. God names Adam and Eve, God names Jesus, God names John the Baptist as we go through history. Man takes dominion, he was doing that. So what's happening? He's passing the animals by, is there a helper? Well that horse would be good to ride, hard to feed, maybe some other things. Elephant? I don't know. I can't cuddle up to an elephant. So God says, that's not good. That's not good. That's not good. The very good that I created, there's something that's not good. And what is it? The man is alone. He's created in God's image, but he is a creation. So he finds him a helper. And it goes on to say, in verse 24... Verse 23, then God, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me, the rib that was taken out of Adam. Here's here's where marriage begins, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Hmm, still good. Now he has a helper. What do we do to criminals, the worst of criminals, when we really want to punish them? Where do we put them? In jail, but solitary, right? In our own man-made thinking, we know that being in isolation in solitary is not a good thing. That's what God was seeing. He wanted to bring the happiness and the completeness to his creation of mankind, and he could only do that with woman. Man and woman are necessary for God's plan to work. It is. Be fruitful, be multiply. All right, things are good. We'll just go on. Everything's, hey, things are great. Perfection, right? Boom. What happens in chapter 3? What happens in Genesis chapter 3? All that perfection, all their needs taken care of, nothing could be better. There is an enemy. There is an enemy. was one of the angels, one of the created beings. Different names, Lucifer most oftenly called Satan, came in the form of a serpent. You know the story. There were trees. We're not going to go over it. But anyway, sin entered in. But guess what? God had a plan. Plan of redemption. And he promises to send his son. Now, why would he do that? Okay, let's go. So, marriage is there. Man shall leave his, you know, father and mother. They don't even have fathers and mothers at this point yet. But Next slide. Now, I use this little triangle. It helps me if you can see it. And I put over what a Christ-centered marriage should be. I'm kind of flipping to the Ephesians 5. So we established God created very special acts of creation, man and woman. Blessed them. Told them to multiply, to have dominion over the earth. All of a sudden, sin came in. And we have been fighting as individuals, as couples, as Christians, as anyone who's ever lived to find that oneness that was broken with God that holiness that intimacy your marriages i can i i can't even begin to think of all the stories that have walked in here today joys heartaches sorrow goodness evil we have been fighting back against the sin that entered mankind and it's entered into our marriages, but God did not create marriage to not achieve His purposes, right? He created it. So what I did on the left there—I like to use the triangle. Remember when we were talking about Ephesians: wives submit, husbands love. Acts of mutual submission. Mutual submission. Husbands, you gotta be loving your wives if you expect them to respect you. If you expect them to honor you. Wives, you're told to submit. Now, mankind messes that up a lot. Submit doesn't carry a real positive word anymore, does it? We have whole groups that are fighting against that. Submit. Was a military term, but it also had a non military term. It was to cooperate, carry burden, and help. Kind of sounds what God said. Men, you better be loving, better be caring. Now, I've got a lot of verses there. You can take those down later if you want. But Jesus had to come. And here's where it gets, to me, exciting. If you could go to the next one. God took a form of culture that was at that time that Jesus was ministering and endorsing and giving authorization to the word of God, going all the way back. Where did he perform his first miracle? Marriage feast, right? Marriage was so important and is so important to witnessing to a world that's waiting to see and understand what God wants. So I've taken, and I've researched it, there will be a little bit. In ancient Jewish literature, there were, three, there were three phases of the marriage, of marriage. First was the contract or covenant. The father was usually in charge of doing all that. Hmm, father, that sounds familiar. Then there was a bride, obviously for the groom, and the father. And they entered into contract, consummation of marriage, and a celebration. Now, how does that start to look like the gospel? The father sent the son. That's what you would do. He would sign a contract, he would sign a covenant, he would pay a price. Then the son would go back home to the father. Maybe for a year, maybe more, till he could pay the bride price. Wow. I go to prepare a place for you. Guess what the groom, the son, would be doing? He would be building a place, a room, for his bride to come to. Is there anything at all in Scripture that kind of relates to that? He's telling people right before... After his resurrection, it's important that I go and prepare a place for you, right? Contract's been paid; you are legally married in that culture, even though you haven't consummated the marriage yet. And the only way you can make that break that marriage vow is a divorce, a contract of divorce that was given to them, quote for the hardness of their hearts. Consummation. He's going to gather his bride. We don't know the time. Did you ever hear Jesus say anything like, well, when is, well, you say you're coming back. You, you, you say you're going away. They didn't quite understand at the time. He was just doing and illustrating it in the imagery that we see in the Jewish wedding. He was showing the importance of it at that time too. He's going, I'm, I'm going back to what? Prepare a place. And that's what the groom would do. Jesus, in this case. The bride. Who's the bride in the New Testament? The church, men and women, spiritually equal, with different roles to complete God's plan for marriage. And then when Jesus would be asked, well, whoa, 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 okay, you said you're going away. He goes, yeah, I'm going back to my father's house to prepare a room. Oh, they could kind of understand that. So that where I am, you may be also. He's coming back for them. They don't know when. Guess who sets the time in Jewish culture? The Father. Just like Jesus said. When are you coming back? I don't know. The Father sets that time. But when he comes, it's going to be with trumpets. That's how they would announce it. And you had to be ready to go. You had to be prepared. His bride, the church. The church. Has to be prepared. And he's gonna gather us up. And then at the end, eventually, they consummate the marriage before they have the feast. We don't do that anymore in Western culture. We marry off, uh, go to the reception hall, right? But there, when he took and grabbed his bride and took her back in this procession that was announced by trumpets arrayed in all of her finery, He took her into the room he had prepared in his father's house for her. And they were left alone mostly for seven days. They would be fed, they would be taken care of, but they consummated their marriage in the Jewish culture, in the father's house. Now, I don't know where you are in your view of end times, but it sure lines up with the gathering of the bride of Christ to go to the father's house. And then once he's gathered all of us, go to Revelation. There are 1,189 chapters in the English Bible, the way we set stuff up. Only four of them don't deal with the fall. Isn't that kind of different? We read from two of them, Genesis 1 and 2, and then you have to go all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 19 and 20, To find the end game. This whole book (laughs) is our instruction guide that God has given us, that He has provided for us. He said, I instituted marriage. He also endorses singleness if you're called to that. This is mostly about marriage in the gospel. It tracks exactly with what Jesus was saying I paid the bride price, I shed my blood. I went back to the Father's house. I'm coming again. Is that not the gospel? And I'm going to gather to myself believers. And we're going to go and we're going to consummate the the wedding. Men and women, we're the bride. Guys get over it. We're brides at a certain level. But this book is our guide. There are so many verses in there. I I could take us through 20 or 30 verses right now that just show in John, in Revelation, in the Old Testament, throughout all the Gospels, where Jesus and the writers are making connections to this very feast-like imagery. And then at the end, there's going to be a celebration of the Lamb, right? Revelation, celebration of the Lamb. Next slide. So that's just really a short way. I'm back to the triangle. God has created us. We can justify that by going back all the way to the beginning of Scripture. He's made us male and female. That's all he made. Don't get into gender confusion here. He made male and female. Some he has called to singleness and celibacy. Most are called to marriage. And it is holy, and it is blessed. But what do we need most? If we focus our eyes on the groom and the father. Instead of on, I'm angry. He left his clothes. Fill it in. Yes, we are angry. But we made a vow at some point when we're married in front of not just God, but our friends and families that I would be there committed to my wife in the power of God knowing that she is a special act of creation, not somebody I should dishonor, disrespect, disregard. And yes, it happens. It happens. This is just short. I just wanted to show. If you want to have the best witness with the most intimate relationship that you have every day of your life if you're married, or if you've been married, or you're going to get married, it's with your spouse. And it pleases God. When husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, the bride. Husbands. Love, wives, come alongside and submit. There's one thing on that diagram that I didn't put that we in the church age have. We have the Holy Spirit. Because he said, hey, when I go to my father's house, go to prepare the room, I'm going to send you a counselor, someone to come alongside you. Not get rid of all the hardship, Not get rid of all the anger. Not get rid of all the evil. Not just keep going. All the stuff we experience in marriage. Marriage is a grueling thing at times. But it is one laboratory God has given us to learn how to love him and love each other. So that we can love others. Would you agree with that? Does that make sense? I am not minimizing anything. But God did create marriage and he created it to be the single most effective witness to a watching world short of God's saving grace. So you want to you witness? You want to learn to love your spouse? You want to learn to love God? Keep looking up. If one of you is looking up and the other isn't, it's going to be troublesome. But even there God says and Paul wrote because he had ladies that were asking him, hey, my husband's not a believer. I just became a believer. So stay with them. Stay with them. Endure unless you're coerced into sin or something like that or you're in danger. But marriage is equal to sharing the gospel. We have to do this right. Our culture needs us to do it Right.